Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, our guest has loved film and TV music from an early age. His love of cinema led to attending USC School of Cinema Television, where his short film, Till Death to Us Part, won an award. He, he wrote a feature film, The Long Walk Home, which starred Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg. He worked at various companies as a screenwriter and for companies like uh, MGM, Disney, Paramount, among others. He then formed his own production company, Cloverland Productions, which specialized in creating special features for DVDs and Blu-rays. He's co-authored three books on the James Bond phenomenon. He has several screenplays under pre-production and a novel that he's writing. Now, I don't know how the heck he has time for us today, but and I'll never know, but I'm so glad that he did. So I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming John Cork to the program. Hi, John. Hello, hello, Frank. How are you doing? I'm fine. You are one busy dude and someone I've always wanted to talk to. Uh, based on the fact, as most of my listeners know, I'm a huge James Bond fan, and so I'm familiar with your work on that. We'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. But, uh, but I do want to kind of know a little bit more, as, again, most of my listeners know, I like to find out more about the person uh, behind all the accomplishments and those sorts of things. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of, like, you know, growing up and what you were like as a kid, siblings, family, all that sort of stuff outside of the film part of it first. Just kind of let us know a little bit about John Cork, the person. Well, I grew up mostly in Montgomery, Alabama, a little bit in Tallahassee, Florida. And I was probably, you know, an annoying brat as a kid. I was an only child. Uh, so uh, that was, uh, but I did have an a uncle who was 11 years older than me and an aunt who was 14 years older than me. So I got tormented wonderfully by them. And they uh, both wonderful parts of my life. My aunt's still alive. My uncle passed away, unfortunately. Mm. And we had, uh, but I loved movies. I, I, I loved 
writing. I loved reading. My mother used to read me novels when I was a fairly small kid, aside from just you know children's stories. And we loved talking about stories. And I just enjoyed getting lost in this wonderful world outside of Montgomery, Alabama that you could see on big screens and small ones. I love that. Now, you know, you know, I'm sure the audience isn't shocked. We talked a little bit before we started recording, and I meant to ask this then, but I'm going to ask it now. I, I got to know, when was it that you lived in Montgomery, Alabama? I lived in Montgomery, Alabama uh, really from my birth in 1961 until I went off to college in 1980. Okay, this is going to blow your mind. It blows mine, too. Are you familiar with a high school called the Montgomery Academy? I, it wasn't just a high school. Montgomery Academy went from kindergarten all the well, way through yeah. high school. Well, you know it and, then, because from nineteen seventy. Uh, yeah, I actually. Go ahead. I'm I mean, sorry. I was going to. I was just going to say, from you know, I attended it for two years uh, when I was growing up. Yeah. Not not the years nineteen seventy four to seventy six. Did you? I was out in by 1974, so I'm presuming that you were there from 1974. I was. I was. My dad was stationed at Maxwell, and I spent my junior and senior years at Montgomery Academy. I mean, I mean, our paths almost crossed. That's just wild. <laughs> just wild. Well, you would you wouldn't have recognized me because I was I was just a little twerp at that point. So <laughs> in 1974, uh, I was I was in Montgomery Academy. 1970 and 70, uh, I, I left, I think, in the end of 72, if I remember wow. correctly. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I would have, I, I left, I'm sorry, I left it, yeah, at the, the very beginning of the 1972. I actually transferred from Montgomery Academy to St. James during my, yep. um, during the middle of the year. Okay. Uh, I, I just, I was not uh, happy at the Montgomery Academy and, I, I understand that. I understand. I was an outsider, had come in. I mean, most of those kids had been there since kindergarten, so they had their own kind of deal going on. And here was like this outsider that comes in. I know exactly what you're talking about, but that's a conversation for another time. So anyway. It, oh, I think we could, we could do an entire podcast on the Montgomery Academy. Oh, and yes, I, have, we could. I have two. I have two great friends who both went to the Montgomery Academy. I think had great experiences there. Uh, for me, I was much, much better at St. James. But Maxwell, we had so many had so many great friends whose family came to Air Force Base, and oh, yeah. and one of the great moments watching a movie was watching. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which a lot of people didn't like, I quite enjoyed. But there's a point in that movie where the the Werner von Braun esque villain is getting on a plane leaving from Morocco, and they say on the plane because he's he's supposedly out of Alabama, which Werner von Braun lived near Huntsville, uh, and they say we'll go and we're going to catch a we'll fly us to Maxwell. Wow, I didn't and even know that. That's a line of dialogue. Yeah, a line of dialogue in that film, and I was like, "The hometown rocks." So yeah, that was great. We will we'll have to have a separate chat about that because that's it's. It, it, ladies and gentlemen, hey, it shows you sometimes you never know how your paths may cross. So there you go. Um, Small world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You've chosen a lot of really great cues today, and I love the variety on it and, and the variety of composers. 
that you've looked at. Let, let's go ahead and dive into some of the, the cues that you've uh, chosen today. The first one I was going to play is from a film called Little Women. Uh, I'm not familiar uh, with the film or the score. Uh, the cue is called Orchard House, which was basically the main theme of the film, and it's written by a very well-known and very uh, liked composer, Thomas Newman. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites. Uh, I wanted to choose it because it's a movie I went and saw, and I'd never read the book growing up because it was called Little Women, and I was I was a guy, and I was like, I wanted to read, you know, <laughs> I can't be I Come on. <laughs> masculine stuff, and but I went and saw it, and I was I was blown away by the film. I much better than the more recent Greta Gerwig version of the film. I thought it was beautifully presented, but the score transported me. It is one of the few films where I walked out of the movie theater. I walked to a record store, uh, say a record store, all selling CDs at that point, uh, in Burbank, California, and I bought the soundtrack right then and there. Wow. Uh, it was just, I just thought it was such a beautiful score and so emotional. And of course, you know, I'll get to some other point about it after we listen to the cue if you want to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and what you're illustrating is what many of my listeners can certainly relate to is the fact that music is so powerful. And it, uh, 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 and you and I are probably old enough to remember, too, unlike some of my listeners, hey, look, the only way you could relive the film, you couldn't just pop in a VHS or a DVD or whatever. You, you know, if you wanted to relive the film, you hope it would be re-released or you'd listen to the soundtrack, right? So... Uh, music can just you know take you to places you just uh, you can't possibly imagine so this is a great example of that especially from your perspective so let's have a listen to this again it's from the film little women uh the cue is called orchard house which is basically the main theme and it's written by composer thomas newman
when I uh, when I introduced you, one of the things that I mentioned was the fact that you uh, went to the L- uh, LSU, <laughs> uh, USC School of uh, uh, what was it? LSU Keepers. Uh, it's USC LSU, Cinema Television. USC Cinema and Television. <laughs> now, my question is, I mean, come on. What a tough industry to break into. What was it that drew you to want to do something like that? Possibly knowing, I don't know if you did, but possibly knowing, hey, look, you know, one in a hundred people actually make it. So, I mean, what was it that drew you to that? I, I loved movies. I wanted to make movies. I want, I, I've, I didn't have a, let me, let me rephrase this. Sure. A lot of my friends in Montgomery, Alabama, grew up in families where their parents told them no quite often (laughs) when they talked about their dreams or their aspirations that you just couldn't get there from here you know you're not going to go to that college we don't want you that far away from home oh you know set your sights more realistically or something along those lines i was fortunate to be raised by a family that never told me I couldn't do something if I set my mind to it. Mm. They were exactly the opposite. They were like, if you can dream it, go and try to pursue it and see if you can make it happen. And, you know, I wasn't somebody who got great grades in school. I wasn't somebody who excelled in, in sports or academics or anything like that. But I was instilled by my family that it was okay to aspire. It was okay to try to achieve something that mattered to you. And, you know, the worst thing that happened is USC didn't let me in. USC's admissions rate for freshmen into the production program was far lower than the admissions rate is now for Stanford or Harvard or any place like that. I didn't know this at the time. Yeah. but where I wanted to go, and I was fortunate that they accepted me. Wow. Good for you. I mean, and, and I asked that question not, not to criticize you. I mean, it's just, that's quite a leap of faith that, you know, hey, look, I'm going to pursue my dreams, and it's great that you had a family that was backing you up on that. Uh, I love that. That's a great way, great way to describe, you know, that process and how you worked through it. Um, gosh, this... This next cue, you and I talked earlier. This next cue I just love. This is from a film called The Natural. And um, I told you, and I'm going to tell my audience now, there are certain parts of this film, when I hear the music, I I, I get goosebumps. Uh, To me, it might be, and and, and, uh, everybody on my podcast know I'm like a huge John Barry fan. No one can come close to him. This comes close. This, well, it doesn't come close, it's equal. Randy Newman really captured what I want to call Americana. It, it, I, it, it, it was such an American score. I, I can't describe it any other way, and maybe you can do a better job of uh, describing it than I can. But you chose a cue called Knock the Cover Off the Ball, which it just it still gives me goosebumps. And so I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your favorites today. You know, I don't think The Natural is a great film. I think it's a beautiful film. It's shot by Caleb Deschanel. Uh, I think it has a very weak manufactured ending to it, very different than the uh, novel by Bernard Malmond. But the music in here 
takes you to every sense of wonderment that you could possibly have, mm. every sense of achieving the impossible, every sense of doing something that, that is remarkable. And I grew up going and watching a lot of football games with my grandfather. And, you know, the, the, the last minute, you know, play that would score that touchdown for the go-ahead win right. or the, the, you know, in one case watching a, a blocked punt be picked up and run into the end zone uh, so that, that the Auburn University could beat Alabama by one point. <laughs> this is the music that brings back the feelings of watching those kinds of moments. Yes. And it's very similar in a lot of ways to Randy's brother, Thomas, in Little Women and what he does with Orchard House, but he gives it a very different mood. In Orchard House, it is about finding that sense of place and home and family and what those relationships mean to you. Very similar methods being used to, to, to bring forth with these very light instruments and not very heavy, uh, um, deep foreboding sense of, of, of anything there, but something that is uplifting. And, you know, we have too little in our lives that's truly uplifting on just kind of a spiritual level. And I don't mean that in a religious way or moral way or anything like that. But music that takes you and puts you into a whole different place. It makes you think about the greatest things in your life. And I think both the, the Orchard House cue and Knock the Cover Off the Ball from The Natural do that. I, I'm a, gosh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Do you... Do you do you understand what I mean by by Americana sounding music? That it sounds like, maybe not today Americana, but certainly as it was in the past. It, does that make sense to you? What I'm saying that it it just sounds like it's got an, an Americana theme to it or feel to it. Both of these uh, pieces of music have that sense of nostalgia yeah, woven okay. in with the way that the repeating notes and the 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 echoes that sort of come within the music, musically echoes uh, within there, that they have have that ability there. And they also, you know, they don't have like, you know, great American songbook feel or they don't, and they don't, you know, fall in with uh, say John Philip Sousa, you know, which is kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah. a certain type of Americana or barbershop quartet right. or, or something like that, or even Scott Joplin, uh, vis-a-vis Marvin Hamlish from the score from The Sting. But they, they certainly have this sense of a past that we want to reconnect to. And in that sense, I totally understand what you, what you mean. All right, well, terrific. Well, enough talk about it. Let's listen to it for ourselves. This, again, is from the film called The Natural. Uh, the cue is called Knock the Cover Off the Ball, and it's written by composer Randy Newman.
you know, in reading through uh, your bio and, and thinking about through your career, I, I found it interesting that it, it seems to me you were having some success working for others. I mean, you had, you know, written some screenplays and you had, you know, we were a screenwriter for various major Hollywood studios. And then all of a sudden you decided to go off on your own and start your own production company. I mean, that took a lot of guts. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, what uh, what drove you to do that? And I mean, taking that kind of a risky step. So I, I'd written this screenplay, The Long Walk Home, which is set in Montgomery, Alabama during the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955-56. Huh. Okay. And it had gotten produced. It came out, it's, it, it got a lot of great reviews. It got, uh, it's, it still gets mentioned uh, occasionally as a, a, a good civil rights era film uh, or one that portrays the civil rights era and I'm very proud of it and I, it got me a lot of, of jobs with studios it didn't make a lot of money it wasn't a huge hit by any stretch and so the jobs I had with film studios uh, tended to be you know middling to lower priority projects okay. meaning they weren't ones that the studios were kind of putting a lot of resources behind and None of those were getting produced. So eventually I ended up meeting Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson and Cubby Broccoli when the Bond films were being relaunched after the lawsuits from uh, uh, License to Kill over who was controlling MGM and da-da-da, all that sort of right, stuff. So right. when they were getting ready to develop GoldenEye, they hired three writers. They hired Michael France, who was writing what would become GoldenEye. They hired a writer named Richard Smith, and then they hired myself. And wow. Richard Smith and I were only hired to write treatments for future Bond films. And you know, when I got a chance to meet them, they realized I knew more about James Bond than any sane, rational human being, and I knew a little <laughs> bit about screenwriting. And you know, so it, it, it worked out very well. But we, uh, uh, what we did in the course of that is I never ended up writing a treatment. We could never quite agree on a storyline uh, for that, but I did end up writing a character Bible for them. And then after that, uh, very soon working with Lee Pfeiffer and Mark Cerulli, we got the opportunity through MGM to do special edition laser discs of Goldfinger and Thunderball. And then I went back to screenwriting, but I was getting more and more frustrated even though I was getting paid very well, to work on projects that were not moving forward and getting made. So I, and I got some that were very close. I mean, I, I was sent to England to prep a film uh, that was going to be shot there. They had open production offices in Atlanta for another project I was working on. And then something would go wrong and it would fall through. Mm. Uh, nothing having to do with the screenplay, fortunately, but just like, could they find the right cast? That kind right. of stuff, which foils many a, many a film project. And out of my frustration there, I, you know, I just said, I'm not going to do more assignments. I'm going to write um, spec scripts. And I got some of those optioned, and I got some of those, you know, a lot of good meetings off of them. But in 1999, I got a phone call from MGM Home Entertainment, and they said, hey, we're going to do the Bond films on this relatively new format DVD. We want to do special features for them all. Are you interested? 
And I had just written a spec script that had gone out. It had gotten a lot of attention, but it had not sold. So I put months of my life into crafting this script that I was very proud of, but it did not sell. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think I am interested in doing this. <laughs> I'm sure and it so took a lot of a, twisting of your arm to, for that, right? <laughs> well, you know, when you work on a screenplay, you you have to create your own world in your mind. It's you and a laptop screen. That's it. And, you know, you, you end up not getting out of the house very much. You end up, you know, working very, very weird hours. Mm. And when you do a project where you're, you know, you have a budget, and fortunately, you know, MGM, you know, was giving us a reasonable budget, not a great budget, but a reasonable budget. You build a team, you hire people who have certain skill sets, you, you, get the editors you have to figure out the workflow there's a lot of mechanical problems that need to be solved and you get to do the things that was one of the things that interested me about going into film i get to get on planes i'm going to fly to new york to interview people here or fly to jamaica or fly to, to uh the bahamas or fly to london and and meet these people or set up other producers who will work with you to go in and do those interviews, write the questions, and come back and look at the tape and see how it all works out. It, you know, it was a wonderful project. And, of course, I got to meet a lot of people whose work I admired greatly. Production designer Ken Adam would be one. But another one would be John Barry. Oh, who's that? <laughs> no, you know, you know I'm kidding. And we're, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. So, in other words, I guess it was that... Um, when MGM called and said, "Hey, look, we're you know we're, we're looking at uh, special features on DVDs. Would you be interested?" That was the catalyst that said, "You know what? I'm going to go out on my own." Is is that a safe way of saying it? it? It was close. I formed the company during while I was doing the Bond uh, projects, uh, and then from that, I actually went back and I wrote a a another spec script after I finished the Bond project. And I was, again, very proud of it. My agents were very excited about it. And we went out, and once again, it didn't sell. But simultaneously, I had stayed in contact with MGM, and they said, hey, would you like to do special features on this film, Legally Blonde? Maybe you'd like to be involved in uh, Fish Called Wanda and, uh, you know. Wow film called Bandits. And this, it just, so, you know, I started doing that, and I realized... I, I I was kind of burned out on writing, but I loved making these documentaries. Yeah, you know, little short documentaries. They're nothing, you know, earth shattering or whatever. But it was great. I just enjoyed the process so incredibly much. You know, just, they, it, they was, it was are, wonderful. John, they are terrific and fascinating. And anybody that has even just a remote interest in the James Bond films needs to watch these special features. They're terrific. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I can't give you any more superlatives on them. I mean, they're just they're really terrific and interesting. It just you learn things that that you didn't know were there, and to hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were, the people that were actually there and doing the work and those sorts of things must have been an amazing experience. And and I and I want to get back to that here in a little bit and talk a little bit more about it. But I also want to get back to the music, which is part of what we're trying to do today, and. Um, I'm going to divert a little bit from from. Uh, we'll get back to James Bond in a minute. Don't worry, he has a he has an interest in James Bond music as well. We'll get into that. But there's another iconic piece of music that you chose that 
is again amongst one of my absolute favorites. In fact, believe it or not, this was, uh, and I don't want to bore the audience with my life, but I mean, I used to, I used to help organize big meetings, you know, sales meetings or marketing meetings where there'd be a couple hundred people in the audience and those sorts of things. And I used to organize them. And the one thing I always used, I used this particular piece of music as what I would call exit music. In other words, when the meeting was over and hopefully everybody's pumped up, we're going to walk out to this music. I'm talking about the end titles to the uh, movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh my gosh, this is just, uh, what an amazing, you know, themes and just, it really sums up the movie very well. And I know that's something that you chose amongst your favorites. Of course, we're talking about written by uh, the maestro John Williams. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to include that amongst your favorites today. Yeah, I just, I really wanted to just pick a piece of John Williams' music that was iconic. And it, it, it literally could have been a coin flip because he wrote yeah. so many powerful genre and generationally defining themes for music. And Raiders, I think it's probably because Dial of Destiny had come out and I, I'd seen, you know, they they had him conducted at the premiere and I'd seen the YouTube video yeah. of, of them having the live orchestra there. I was able to see John Williams uh, live at the Hollywood Bowl and you know it's jealous it, well it, it it just it was such you know all of his music it doesn't matter whether it's superman it doesn't matter whether it's a very different style of music catch me if you can yeah. it doesn't matter if it's if it's the you know star wars there's just so much that he did that moves me and and just you know, you just want to hear it over and over. It, it, it's great. So, but Raiders is one of the great adventure themes that was never written in the 1930s or 40s. And that's something I truly love is that he's he manages to make it feel current, but also of the period and, and is really paying homage to what is often is, is some pretty weak music from the serials of back in that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, hey, look, look, again, let's stop talking about it. Let's listen to it. This is, again, the, from the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. Everybody's going to be familiar with it, but it's worth playing. This is basically the end titles from Raiders of the Lost Ark, written by the maestro John Williams.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com.
it sounds to me like you're primarily a writer, but you certainly have branched out into that and done a lot of producing and those sorts of things. What um, Do you have a preference towards one or the other, uh, uh, whether it be writing or producing? I mean, maybe that's not a fair question, but I'm just kind of curious. I think for me, the best way to define it is I like creating. Okay. And I like, I'm, I'm also very much interested in history. And so working in documentaries allowed me to be creative, figure out how to craft a story, have to go through the mechanics of production, you know, what kind of video you're shooting, what's the lighting going to be like, you know, what are the challenges when you do something and, you know, what's the interviewer going to tell you, but there's also, you're documenting something, you're generally something of a historical nature. I mean, virtually everything I've done in documentary has been uh, people looking back, maybe a few months, but it very often looking back something more than, you know, a number of decades. Uh, so I, I quite enjoy that aspect as well. But as far as the physical writing process goes, when that's great, I love it. But I also am a very active person. I love being out and, and you know, embracing the world. And it's very hard to do that while you're physically writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> while you're sitting at a uh, desk, yeah, agonizing over a laptop, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it, it's uh, I find as time goes on, my desire to be out and about amongst you know, friends and nature and art and things like that just grows more and more. So that takes time away from the writing. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, uh, we're certainly going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, James Bond and the music that's connected with that, and which leads us into, before we preface a conversation on that, there was another cue you chose, which happens to be a favorite of mine. John Barry always maintained that it was Goldfinger that kind of cemented what the, quote, style of the James Bond sound was going to be. Uh, and and there's, it's very hard to argue with that. The cue that you chose was very interesting. It's, uh, the cue is called Dawn Raid at Fort Knox. And I, I'm going to offer my opinions on it, and I'm happy to hear yours and, and the reasons why you wanted to choose it. What I find interesting about his approach to film scoring, for the most part, was there were a lot of times when he wouldn't score parts of a movie that you would think, you know, these days there would be all kinds of loud, bombastic music going on and there would be nothing going on in a lot of the films he did. With Don Raid, it was interesting. There were times that if you didn't have music, it would be really boring to sit there and watch it go on. But with his music, it just makes a big difference. And this is a great example of that. There are times when people are walking around or people are falling down. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really high action, but because of the music, it really draws you in. That, that's kind of my thoughts on it. So I'm just curious. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose this particular cue as amongst your favorites. So this is a cue that is that has a tremendous amount of bombast to it. I mean, it's it, it is as over the top as you can get, as far as the music goes. And what he's doing is contrasting to exactly what you said. What you're watching is a lot of movement through space, vehicles driving down roads, you know, uh, in a line. I mean, that's kind of what you're watching <laughs> happen 
going on here and, and, you know, people mechanically gathering outside the gates of Fort Knox and, you know, setting a, an explosive device off and stuff like that. You, you've got uh, um, that and you've got the, the flying over Fort Knox with the, with the planes uh, right. going around and some, some not very good uh, shots of soldiers falling way too quickly. Uh, from the, there's like no way that gas gets from that plane flying overhead down to those soldiers doing jumping jacks in time uh, for them to collapse on cue all at once. It was stuff that was shot very quickly. It's, but the music takes you into this world of, of like, Oh my goodness, there's an incredible amount of danger that is building here and he rescues a scene that, quite frankly, otherwise, uh, was laughable, and and that's that's not to you know diminish Guy Hamilton's great accomplishments or Peter Hunt's great accomplishments as the director and the editor of, of the film. It, it's it's to say that they had the right team together, yeah. and they knew when they. Yeah, so and that and that's really what filmmaking is. It's a collaborative medium. And if if the if you didn't get it quite right when you're shooting it, hopefully the editor can can cut it to make it a little bit stronger. And if there's only so much the editor can do, sometimes the composer can pull that rabbit out of the hat. And that is what John Barry was so great at doing, and that's why I love this piece. Wow, beautifully said. Well, let's listen to it to ourselves. This Rather long cue, but it's well worth it, trust me. This again from the film Goldfinger. It's called uh, Dawn Raid at Fort Knox, and it's written by, in my view, the maestro John Barry.
Okay, when we were preparing for this uh, program, you had mentioned that you had listened to our episode about the, uh, you know, quote, who wrote the James Bond theme, unquote, and you found it very interesting and you enjoyed it, you complimented it and those sorts of things. But you also mentioned that you had a, I don't know, maybe a, a different take on it due to the fact, a couple of reasons why, but also, I mean, let's face it, Unlike the three guests and myself that, well, I mean, I did interview him, but not to the extent you did, but unlike most of us, you didn't have a chance to actually talk with some of the people that were involved in this, most notably, obviously, John Barry and Monty Norman, and you had a chance to interview both, and, and you had shared with me that you had a kind of an interesting perspective on this topic, so I was wondering if maybe you could uh, share that with us. Well, it'll be up to you and your listeners to decide whether it's interesting or not. <laughs> Here's the... Here's the thing. I mean, none of us were there when, you know, 
Barry was working on the James Bond theme. None of us were there when Monty Norman was working on uh, Bad Sign, Good Sign for House of Mr. Biswas. None of us were, were there during any interactions that may have occurred, whether it was with you know, Burt Rhodes or anybody else who was associated with, with getting that theme recorded. So all we have is, is people's fallible memories. We all misremember things. I was just talking about Don Raider and Fort Knox. I'm going to be honest with finger upwards of a hundred times. And I'm sitting here trying to think, okay, where exactly is that music? Is it in both of these places? Is it only over one of these <laughs> scenes? I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm fuzzy on that. Right. And this is a film I know inside and out. There are things from my own life. People tell stories all the time where, so you get Monty Norman, you know, saying, yeah, John and I met at these places. And then other people are saying, no, I think that was when they were working on Call Me Buona. And John Barry's, no, I didn't meet him. I didn't have any contact with him. So at that point, what I like to do in my mind from my vague historian hat going on is throw out all the eyewitness testimony. Hmm. and say, let's go back and let's just look as best as we can at the written record. And what the written record shows is there was a house call, uh, was a, a musical being developed for the house of Mr. Biz was. There was a song, Bad Sign, Good Sign, and that does have the core melody that we identify as the James Bond theme, about 80% of what we would call that, that core melody line. Right, that's the in guitar there. Now, there riff, are, in other words, right? The guitar riff, but that's the core melody right. line. If you yeah, walk yeah, down yeah. the street and you say to people, you know, tell me how the James Bond theme goes, what they don't do is go da 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 So that's a part that, you know, some people have said, well, that is certainly a John Barry contribution to the song. So, but that core part of the melody line... Uh, da, 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 da. Right. That core part, that is something we can go and say, okay, I can see a direct line from bad sign, good sign to this. Now, the question is, everybody talked in that episode about how transformative John Barry's arrangement uh, and potential co-composing was. Right. And then the question is, what gets somebody a composer credit? And I, a couple of years ago, I worked on a screenplay about the potential origins of the song Blue Moon. I was hired by uh, the, the daughter of, of a man who sued Rogers and Hart over the authorship of that song. Huh. And so I got to do a deep dive into the song Blue Moon. None of that's important, but what I wanted to ask you to do is see if you could play two different versions of Blue Moon, one from the early 50s and one from the or mid 50s, I'm sorry, one from the mid 50s by Elvis Presley. And just the beginning, we just need to go to the first, the end of the first line of the lyrics. Right. And then another from 1961, which is done by the group, the Marcells. Okay. And well, let's, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just if you could go ahead and, and play those two, I, I'd love to chat about them. Okay. Let's have a listen uh, for ourselves again two different versions of blue moon and then we'll be right back these are just very short clips
Okay, I'm really interested and fascinated about where we're going with this. So tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to play those clips. Okay, so the Rogers and Hart Blue Moon has been done in many different tempos, many different styles. But the yep. Elvis Presley one is is one that that you know, while it's a little slower than I think Rogers and Hart ever really imagined it to be, a little bit really leans into those sort of you know blues uh, the feelings of the mid 1950s there but you hear the marcel's version of the same song and they're they aren't playing the same notes i mean they're not only in a different key they are actually taking those those musical arrangements and they have completely transformed it and not only that but they have taken an intro which they developed for a totally different song and their producer said, why don't we put that at the beginning of Blue Moon? And they did. So that whole doo-wop thing that goes at the beginning before they go into their doo-wop version of Blue Moon was not even written. There's nothing that relates to anything that Rodgers and Hart did. But the Marcells do not suddenly receive writing credit. That is an arrangement. Mm. And in today's world, we've, we've shifted over time the concept of what it means to arrange a piece of music. And because we don't have a recorded version of Monty Norman's The James Bond theme prior to John Barry's arrangement of it, it becomes very, very easy to say, oh, because this sounds like John Barry, because it feels like John Barry, clearly it's John Barry. Now, the James Bond theme kept being used over and over again. The theme from From Rush With Love did not. And in fact, most people, if you don't know, would say, oh, from Rush With Love, it's John Barry because he did the score for the soundtrack and he uses the theme from, from Rush With Love in and out of virtually every cue on that soundtrack, uh, with the exception of a few, the 007 theme, Bond Steals the Lecter, sure. don't have it in there. But, but most of those will go back and take out certain sections of From Rush With Love. That's Lionel Bart. That's not John Barry. Yeah. Now, John Barry never proclaimed that he co-wrote it. He never proclaimed, but he also didn't give Lionel Bart credit for the cues where he incorporated the themes from, from Rush With Love on the soundtrack album. Hmm. So that's, which is okay. I mean, I, I don't know what their arrangement was. I, I, Lionel Bart, you know, didn't seem to be upset with the success of From Rush With Love or anything like that. So... I look at that and I say, if you look at great arrangements that transform a piece of music, Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers, and then you listen to the Mamas and Papas version of it, there's so many songs like this that, that are just transformed by somebody doing a great arrangement of it. The other thing is that I 
believe, and I did ask Monty Norman about this specifically, and he, he said he didn't think it was really this way. So I could be completely wrong and whatever. There was a, a way that themes were being done back in the day, and it begins really with the Colonel Bogey March uh, in Bridge on the River Kwai. You know. Right. Yeah. And so you listen to that and you listen to The Great Escape and the theme from there. And there's a lot of orchestral stuff, but there's that very high sort of military march version of things that are going on there. And if you listen to the way the Bond theme is incorporated into the score for Dr. No, you begin to hear a little bit of that sort of idea of a high-pitched military hero's theme. Very simple, very clean, done very nicely, very similar to what Monty Norman sings when he's singing Bad Sign, Good Sign from the House of Mr. Biz was. A much higher register, no darker uh, orchestral undertones in there, the counterpoint's not in there. That's, that's, you know, so you listen to that and you go like, Maybe that's what he was trying to do. And when John Barry's brought in, now that's where you're getting the guitar. You're not doing a sitar with that very high, you know, yeah. pitch thing. You're getting these very dark undertones that Barry's doing in his arrangement. Now, I love John Barry. He welcomed me into his home three times to interview him. An incredible composer. Nothing I want to say here should denigrate John Barry. I'm so jealous you other... had a chance to do that, by the way. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, you, you got to interview him back in the day, and yeah. your interview is fantastic with him. I thought it was wonderful. Thank you. But, but here's the other question. Did anybody who worked with John Barry ever claim that he was taking credit for essentially their work? I mean, Peter Hunt, didn't Peter Hunt kind of infer? Not Peter Hunt. Peter Hunt, Peter Hunt wasn't a composer. I'm talking about somebody who said they wrote, wrote a piece of music and that John Barry received some credit on it that they wondered kind of why he was getting credit on it. Oh, okay. No. And that would be A View to a Kill and The Living Daylights, both Duran Duran and AHA said, we basically came in with the song and he just said, oh, we should put some chords under here or some chords under there. He arranged it but basically, the didn't he? Yeah. The, the well, they, he didn't even arrange it. The bands recorded it and he had an orchestra that, that played some, some, some under themes to it or whatever. But contractually, they were required to share the songwriting credit with him, but they came in with the song basically he did not rewrite those songs and john barry was a great songwriter yeah. you know you're looking at born free you're looking at, at at you know we have all the time in the world goldfinger thunderball diamonds are diamonds, forever yeah. i mean yeah we're just talking about some amazingly crafted songs so he had the skill set there but when they wanted to say, listen, let's go back to what worked with Live and Let Die. Let's get these pop groups in here um, that are going to help deliver potential hits for us. Barry said, okay, I'll do it, but I have to be able to work with them. And he came in and the bands were honored to work with him, but 
they all, both of them said they had similar experiences. They worked. Barry sort of sat there and said, well, you know, I can do this or that or whatever, but that he did not contribute all that much. Now, that mm. is, again, not to denigrate Barry. That yeah, was yeah. the contract. That was the deal. But when I look at that, I say, is there a similar experience outside of the James Bond theme with Monty Norman? And there's not. Mm. John Barry was surrounded by people for decades who were wonderful fans and they kept saying come on you wrote the James Bond thing come on that's you isn't it come on <laughs> and at a certain point you begin to say yeah I wrote a bunch of that music and he did but is it an arrangement or is it a co-composition well the famous quote always was well you know if I didn't write it why was it that I you know why was it that I was invited to do the next film and he wasn't? But the funny thing is, the next film Broccoli and Saltzman did was Call Me Buana, and guess who the composer was? <laughs> Monty Norman. They brought him Mon back. Monty Norman. And not only I that, understand but they did, and they did the same thing, though, when they went to do uh, For Mark With Love. They put Lionel Bart in there to do that. That, that was, that they brought him in to write that song. The idea at the time was, can we get some big hit song out of this that's going to help offset the cost of making this big expensive movie? Right. And they went to Lionel Bart and they said, John, you do the rest of the score because we found out with Monty Norman that we had somebody who's pretty good at writing songs. Underneath the Mango Tree and Jamaica Jump Up, they are actually, I think, good songs. Uh, you know, let's get somebody to go and do there. You do the score. You do what you would do with Cliff Richard. You do what you did with Zulu. Let's get you to write a score on that end. And I think that's that's a, a very important way to look at it there takes until Goldfinger before he is truly given the keys to the kingdom uh, on that end. I mean, that's, well, you know, that's great. You thank know, so. you. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that, you know, that's going to, I would expect, and I hope that our uh, listeners will have some interesting conversation on that. Please put it on our Facebook page. What's the score.com or, uh, or uh, on, on my Facebook page for that, for that, or from my own personal Facebook page. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think that's an interesting perspective. Well, let's let's stay with the James Bond theme, but with a little bit of a twist in terms of music. The next cue you chose, and I remember you and I discussed this uh, several weeks ago, and I'm talking about the film Casino Royale, not the one with Daniel Craig, but the one from 1967. Uh, the score is written by Burt Bacharach. The cue you chose is Money Penny Goes for Broke. Now, what you and I discussed and what I've always heard uh, and I think indeed it is true. It is one of the, the the very best stereo recordings I guess ever known to them, never ever known to man. I don't know what was so special about the recording process or where it was done, but it's always revered as being a highly uh, sought after recording that just has such great high fidelity. It's unbelievable. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that uh, particular cue amongst your favorites today. Casino Royale. Uh, 1967 was not the first James Bond film I, I 
even have a memory of seeing, but it was the one that I kind of remember the best. Huh. And I went with my aunt to a drive-in movie theater, and the next day my aunt was like, I want to go buy the soundtrack. And we went out to a, a, a record store in Montgomery, bought the soundtrack, and I was like, I want it, I want it. So literally I have the, the copy that she bought at the time with wow. my name as a little kid written on it, uh, and I still have that, that, that album, that LP <laughs> on there. And I always loved it. And part of it I loved because I saw it with my aunt at a drive-in movie theater and we went and bought that record together. But as I listened to it more and more, I was like, this music just makes me happy. And <laughs> The Look of Love, it's one of the great songs from the yes. 1960s for me. Yes. You know, what are the ingredients of a great James Bond film? It's got to have crazy, wonderful sets. It needs to have beautiful women. It's got to have handsome men it's got to have some great adventure and it's got to have a lush amazing score and Burt Bacharach delivers on that stuff in spades and so you know unfortunately the 1967 movie uh, is missing one key thing which is any character we would recognize truly as James Bond that's a little bit of a downfall of the film but the score and how much fun is in that music there's a reason it's gotten used over and over and things like the podcast this american life used it for a long time it's 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 fantastic plus the audio quality of that stereo lp recording yeah they recorded it in germany and they tested out a way of recording at very very high levels meaning that the what would usually go into uh um uh, cause audio breakup because the levels would get too high and you'd go into the red zone. They recorded it and they were able to keep those clean. And oh. so you had a dynamic range on that record that was magnificent. And audiophile for ages have used it as a test record to see how good an audio system is, you know, can be. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This again is from the uh, 1967 version of Casino Royale. The cue is called Money, Co- uh, Money Penny Goes for Broke, and it's written by composer Burt Bacharach.
you know, being such a big film fan, you've you've had an opportunity to do things I think a lot of fellow fans like myself would have loved to have do. I mean, so I guess my question is, what? Gosh, what's the coolest thing you've been able to do in your career that, as a film fan, you said, well, I can't believe I'm here doing this? Oh, wow. That, that is so... Uh, I, I hate to say, they're just so... There's too many, right? <laughs> I, I think possibly the greatest was being able to take my son the world premiere of Skyfall. Uh, and it was his first time getting to go to a big premiere event like that yeah uh and we flew over to london it fortunately dovetailed with his school break and uh, you know we flew over there and we got to go to the premiere and he got to meet sam mendez and uh he got to meet uh roger deakins who i had worked with he had shot the long walk home but he also of course did such spectacular work on skyfall and right some other celebrities there and it was just it was such a great experience to share that with him and and just see the wonderment in his eyes and of course it was just such a great bond film for me so i I quite enjoyed it i bet and and again to share that with a with a son what made it even extra special it uh, i i I had an opportunity to go to the the premiere for goldeneye and with my wife and it was a again a kind of a a really special experience because that was that was an unusual world premiere but it was held in new york so it was one of those few times when it actually uh, took place in the United States as opposed to England. So, yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I bet that was really special. And, of course, you've had a chance to meet some some really fascinating and influential, very talented people. Were there certain folks uh, along the line of those that you interviewed that, uh, you know, for documentaries and whatnot that uh, you found particularly interesting or satisfying for you? I, there were so many. I mean, I, I love to mention Ken Adam and John Barry because there's their work I'd admired for so many years. And I, I used to have to contact Ken Adam quite often to ask questions for about this or that. And you'd call his house up and he was always just couldn't have been nicer. But there's so many. I got to be friends with Peter Hunt. He lived the last chapter of his life in Los Angeles when I was living there. And if there was a screening of a Bond film, uh, Sometimes I would call him up and and uh, get a group of friends and we'd take him out to dinner and you know, he'd regale us with stories and then we would go in to watch the movie. And he used to like to sit in the back of the movie theater with me and just kind of give me a personal audio commentary oh, during the film. And that was really remarkable. Uh, I had a similar experience with the... I mean, I'll tell you one of the experiences with, with Peter Hunt is MGM contacted me and they said, we're going to do a new transfer of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And this is not the transfer that's happening now uh, uh, that, that you would see on DVD or Blu-ray at this point. But he, um, I, I called Peter Hunt up and said, you should come over and, and be party to this. And MGM was thrilled. And so he came over and we're like, okay, at the beginning, there's this whole thing with the sunrise and how that grades. And he just turned to the colors. He said, oh, you know what you're doing. Oh, just don't, you know, yeah, yeah, that looks good. That's fantastic. He just wanted to sit there and talk to me and my friend Jeff Burgs, a, a filmmaker, about what was it was like to make Majesties. I mean, wow. he just wanted to hang out and be be friendly. And we're, we're sitting there having to stop and say, is this shot too blue? Is this too dark? How do you like? 
<laughs> we're trying you know it's like we have the director there this is this is the you know this version will be seen by millions of people and he's, he's you know was um, only vaguely interested let's put it that way wow what a great experience though i bet that was i bet that was special i bet that was special um i'm so glad that you included uh as another selection of some of your favorite cues this particular composer i'm talking about jerry goldsmith who i as my listeners will know is probably my second favorite composer out there uh the film you chose was a, a favorite amongst a lot of goldsmith fans we're talking about the film called the wind and the lion uh the cue you chose was uh, i'm going to mispronounce this rasul rasul attacks is that rasuli 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 that's the cue you chose. Tell us a little bit about why you want to include that in your favorites. It, again, it's it's one of these ones that was a, a piece of music, and it's it, it's people don't some people don't like this term now, but it, it has an exotica element to it. You know, it's it's the north coast of Africa. I knew nothing about this when the film came out, and the music took me into this place. Now, you know, Jerry Goldsmith. I don't even know if he ever went to the north coast of Africa for all you know no real clue but he managed to capture and use these instruments that that I I truly loved the sound of and you know you you can listen to something like Cashmere by Led Zeppelin which is uh, almost of a similar era but uh, almost very much a similar era but you listen to what Robert Plant was doing with some of his music after Led Zeppelin and how much he loved that music from Morocco and those sounds. And Jerry Goldsmith, again, he's somebody who's going in and he's doing an approximation of the music. He's taking his uh, very much North American sensibilities and merging it with these other instruments to create this, this hybrid there. And I think he does a beautiful job of it. And I you know, there's a term called cultural appropriation now, which, you know, is, uh, I, I understand, but I also love it when cultures mesh and merge and create something that is new and unique of itself. And I think that this, this piece captures all of that. Great description. I agree. And goals, wasn't he great with finding unique sounds or instruments or those sorts of things to use in his scores? And this is a a good example of that. But let's let's have a listen for ourselves. This again is from the film called The Wind of the Lion, and it's written by composer Jerry Goldsmith.
I mentioned in our introduction, you, you're a very busy guy. You have a lot of things going on, so I'm just kind of curious. Uh, what's, what's in the future for John Cork right now? What, what, do you, what have you got in the pipeline, if anything? Well, when we met, I was down in New Orleans, and I was doing a, a, a little hunk of audio recording uh, down there. I'm working on developing a podcast. It has not dropped yet. That The tentative title is The Secret World of James Bond, and it's going to look some at the films, but a lot at the literary history and some stories that I don't explored or may have never been told about how James Bond became the character we know and love now and how those stories and Ian Fleming's life itself interacted with the history of the 20th century. Oh, I love it. Okay. And that's really it. And, that, and that's, a, is that something we can expect to see soon for, I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, uh, months? I think I, my hope is 2024. It's going to depend. I, I, part of the goal is to go to locations that are important to all of these stories and record on those locations, which in documentary is almost vital most of the time. Sure. But certainly in podcast, there's, you know, you could be standing anywhere and saying, I'm standing at the base of the Statue of Liberty. But <laughs> I, I, I do actually want to go to those places and, and get a sense and a feel for what those actual places are like today and see what is left of the world Ian Fleming knew when he right. was creating James Bond. Yeah, well, it's a dirty job when someone has to do it, right? <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so hopeful for 2024, but it's all going to depend on a few things. I've got um, other things. It, sometimes bright, shiny objects are family stuff comes up, uh, other work comes up that, that delays things, and something gets put on the back burner. But uh, trying to move forward as, as much as I can. I've, I've been fortunate to do a fair amount of recording so far. I spent a, a month in Japan and recorded a bunch of stuff wow. related to You Only Live Twice uh, and Fleming's visit when he was developing the, the little essay for Thrilling Cities uh, there in Japan. So, and is, is this audio or video? Um, the audio. This would be a, this would okay. be a podcast. Uh, I'm not shooting... Uh, you saw me in in New Orleans. I was yeah, yeah, shooting yeah. video, so you know it was. It's well, yeah, really it's really an audio project. And it's interesting. I'm curious to your thoughts about this. I mean, not that I've had a lot of people mention it, but 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 some people, well, you know, hey, what you know, when you do these interviews, why don't you you know have you on split screen with your guest and and talk on video? And I thought, you know, there's something magical about radio, radio for lack of a better term, or just listening to audio that kind of draw. I think draws the, the listener in even more so than it would by, you know, video. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because you must have made I, a choice to do audio only. I, well, it it's certainly something, I mean, one of the great things about podcasts is you can go down little rabbit holes and you don't, you can cut those off into an episode and say, hey, we're going to take this little story and we're going to run with it as far as we want to run with it. And then the next episode, it doesn't have to have the same continuity as a book, for example. And with a documentary, you really want a very strong, straight-line narrative. And documentaries are also expensive, less expensive than hiring actors in feature films. But, and particularly when you're looking at stories that don't, necess they don't necessarily have imagery to go with them. So, you know, I did a documentary a few years back called You Belong to Me, which is available at an Amazon Prime near you. 
uh, and it's about a murder case in the early 1950s in Central Florida. Well, we thought when we started it, there's going to be newsreel footage dealing with this case because it got a lot of press uh, in certain areas. There was no, nobody shot a frame of 16 millimeter film that we could find out there. And huh. we looked everywhere we could try to find it. There was just nothing. There's mountains written about this case, but there was nothing out there film-wise. Huh. We had a very limited number of photographs of the central characters in this story, and that becomes a real challenge when you're doing a documentary if you okay. don't have the imagery, and documentaries eat imagery like bowls of cereal you know, at summer camp. I mean, it's, it's crazy yeah. uh, you know, how much this stuff is... is is you know how much effort it takes to be able to get the right imagery for the right thing and then you're stuck doing recreations and those those can be wonderful but they also come with limitations as well so it's it it really is a, a i think audio is the right format for this yeah. uh, i think yeah. it's 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 a great place to explore some of these stories okay. and you know that's so that's why i chose to do it yeah now i know you're one of the few people i've ever met that I, I don't think has a social media presence, correct? Yeah, I have a LinkedIn profile. Oh, I, okay. I will create a social media pro presence before uh, the secret world of James okay. Bond drops. So in other words, or something our, our, like that. our listeners uh, may but, not have... Yeah, I got off of Facebook years ago. Okay. Our listeners may not have an opportunity to, quote, follow you right now on social media, but they will shortly. So they'll be alerted when... Uh, and I know, you know, you can contact me and I can spread the word as well. Whenever you're ready to launch that podcast, it'll, it'll get out there. Um, John, look, I, I, gosh, I can't thank you enough. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating. I, I'm so, I'm going to sound like, sound like a fanboy. I mean, I'm just so excited to finally meet you and talk with you because I really admired the work you did on the special features on the on the. Uh, the Bond series and stuff, it just, those, those things meant a lot to me. And so I'm grateful for your work on that and really grateful to have, you know, kind of formed a little bit of a friendship here. So thanks again for coming on the program. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. I have, there's one little thing I would love to plug. Uh, sure. That is, uh, Vice TV has a, a series on the James Bond films called Icons Unleashed, Icons Unearthed. And uh, season five is about, James Bond, and there are a number of wonderful Bond experts who are interviewed on there, and apparently they're using some of my interview, and hopefully it will not bring the program down too much, but uh, <laughs> if anybody wants to know what I look like in the flesh, they can they can watch Icons Unearthed and uh, see what see what uh, I have to say on, on the backstories of some of the Bond stories that they're going to tell. That's good. Is that going to be, because I, I have it in my calendar that it's going to, the first show is going to be tonight as we're recording this but for people you know we're not people aren't going to hear this today is that something that's going to be repeatable or something that could be recorded or whatever or do you know yeah i don't know exactly where all vice tv streams but they certainly say you can watch the show on demand at vicetv.com okay terrific yeah yeah i encourage our listeners to uh, to check that out that's certainly on my radar as well once again john my thanks to you for joining us today and sharing your insights and also the, the, the wonderful music cues that you uh, that you chose. I uh, want to 
thank all our listeners for tuning in today and downloading the program, especially those of you that are patrons on patreon.com. We will have a special bonus clip with John here coming up for those of you that are patrons, uh, so we appreciate that. And with that, I guess there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this, that my name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?